Today's scripture reading comes from Luke chapter 19, verses 1 through 10. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was a short man, he could not see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him, since Jesus was coming that way. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. All the people saw this and began to mutter, he has gone to be the guest of a sinner. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay him back four times the amount. Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save what is lost. This is the word of God. In verse 1, Jesus enters Jericho. And this is actually the, the final narrative of Jesus before he makes his way to Jerusalem. And you need to know that once Jesus enters Jerusalem, this really marks the beginning of his journey to the cross. And so... Jesus' encounter with Zacchaeus, it teaches us specific things about who he is, why he came. Now, you've got to know, Zacchaeus here, they call him sinner. He's an outsider, but in the end, he gets to dine and be with Jesus. How? There are three things you've got to do. One, you've got to give up your pride. Two, you've got to give up the crowd. And three, you've got to give up your life. You gotta give up your pride, your crowd, your life. First, you gotta give up your pride. The biggest barrier of encountering Jesus, the biggest barrier receiving Jesus, the biggest barrier experiencing salvation is our pride, our dignity. In verse four, when Zacchaeus, he goes up this tree, he, what he's doing is he's leaving his dignity behind. He's letting go of his pride. Now think about this. In, in an informal culture like ours, think about politics. Think about your dating lives, for that matter. You make one wrong move, and we're very quick to dismiss the person and say, that person's unfit. Even in our informal culture, if a public official does something undignified, we're very quick to dismiss that person. We say, they're unfit, but this is Zacchaeus' day. And Zacchaeus' day is a traditional culture, a religious culture, much more formal than ours. And if you're wealthy in that day, there are all sorts of things that you cannot do because of your status. You didn't run. You didn't, you didn't climb up things. You didn't bear your, because you bare your legs. Much more formal. But if you look at Zacchaeus, this is a wealthy man, and he climbs up this tree. It makes him look immature. It makes him look undignified. And so, essentially what he's doing is he's sacrificing his dignity in order to see Jesus. What do you learn from that? You can't receive salvation unless you're willing to give up your pride. Unless you're willing to look a bit foolish to the people around you. In a sense, you're willing to, to look childish. In our culture, you can actually get away for a while uh, with certain things because you're a child. But at some point, People around you will say, look, it's time to grow up. 
you got to grow up. And we live in the post-enlightenment post, uh, post era. We say in our era that we have the most mature worldview. We have the most mature view of the world. You know, in the primitive days, in the ancient times, they looked to things that were supernatural. We, there's no such thing as the supernatural. Only what is empirically proven Data, that's what we talk about today. All of life, it's all about data. In other words, what we're saying is the visible world is all there is. That we're here by accident. That we're a product of natural selection. That we're mere chemicals and molecules that are colliding to become life. And we're fighting for survival. And when you die, it's only nothingness that awaits us. So you can't believe in God. You can't believe in heaven. Those things are primitive. When you're children, you believe these things, they say. You believe in the supernatural. You read fairy tales and we're filled with wonder. But when you're grown up, you got to tell yourself, we tell ourselves, we need something greater. We need something more mature, something more dignified. Those old days, those are primitive days, undignified. We need something today that's tangible and real and true. But we have that, the gospel. It's why the gospel is first a story. It's why the gospel is first a narrative. We believe that God broke into the world. The whole world is under a curse, and the world, God has broken into the world, born in a manger, undignified. He goes all the way to the cross, and there he dies. And yet, in that undignified death, through that suffering and through that death, he defeats the power of evil, and rises again victoriously. So the gospel says there is a supernatural world. There is an evil prince that placed a curse over all of us and over the land. But a king from another world broke into ours, redeemed his people through his sacrificial love. It makes the gospel the ultimate love story, the ultimate type of fairy tale, the ultimate hero narrative. And yet it's true. It's real. It's tangible. Do you believe it? The gospel is not just another story. It's not just another story. It's the real reality to which all fictional stories point. And if you believe it, it often and quickly restores your wonder like a child. And you can climb the tree. You can oftentimes look indignified around other people. They may call you ancient. They may call you primitive. They may call you backwards. To people around you, it looks foolish. But are you willing to give up your dignity and pride? Are you willing to climb the tree? The second thing that this passage teaches us in terms of seeing Jesus is you have to give up the crowd. The thing that keeps Zacchaeus from seeing Jesus is the crowd. He's a short man. In verse 7, the crowd looks down on Jesus, looks down on Zacchaeus. Why? Because Jesus has gone to be the guest of a sinner, they say. Yes, the number one thing that keeps us from embracing the gospel is our own pride, our dignity. But the second biggest barrier is we can't break through the crowd, especially the religious crowd. Now think about this. If you actually read the few chapters behind or prior to this passage, you see this crowd that's constantly surrounding Jesus. They want to be near Jesus. They, they're following Jesus all the time. What does that tell you? The biggest danger in our lives is that you could be in a crowd of people that wants to be near Jesus, surrounding Jesus, around Jesus, looking for Jesus, and yet never see Jesus, never experience Jesus, never know Jesus. 
And the biggest barrier, again, is your pride. But the second biggest uh, barrier, especially in the church, is that we're often drowned out by people who say they want to see Jesus. Maybe they had the intent to see Jesus. Maybe they're coming with the initial desire to see Jesus, but because of the crowd, they're in the crowd, and they're they're not willing to surrender the things that give them a sense of worth. Those are their real priorities, and they're not, they're not willing to surrender those things. Maybe it's your personal agenda. Maybe it's your wealth building and accumulation. Certain relationships in your life. We see in verse 7, it's even seen as our moral goodness and our self-righteousness. These are some of the biggest barriers to us seeing Jesus, our own goodness. That makes up the crowd. Zacchaeus, he physically, what does he do? He physically runs ahead of the crowd and he climbs a tree. But what he's really doing, you see this in verse 8. He says, I'm letting go of my wealth. I'm letting go of what I believe gave me a sense of worth. I'm letting go. Then to let go of that in his place, you understand this, he's giving up his friendships. He's giving up his relationships. What used to justify him, what made him feel whole, at least in in that moment, and yet, He gets to see Jesus. He sees Jesus. All the people around him, they see this, and the passage says they began to mutter, this guy, because this guy's a sinner. We have plenty of those types of people in the church. There are people super critical, very exclusive, oftentimes touting their knowledge and their gifts, their influence over others to alienate. Oftentimes they alienate people, they judge, they oppress These are the people in this text that do not see Jesus. These are the people that couldn't see Jesus. These are the people that refused to see Jesus, in a sense. Zacchaeus, he couldn't get past, he couldn't get through that crowd. How does he get over this? He found a way to see Jesus apart from the crowd. Not only did he he not let the crowd keep him from seeing Jesus, He wasn't even trying to see Jesus through it. He found a way to get past it, and then he found a way to go over it. He climbed the tree to see Jesus directly. What did that tell you? The church is a hospital for sinners. It is not a museum for saints. You have to get past your self-righteousness. You have to get past the self-righteousness of so many professing Christians around you. You have to get past the self-righteousness of even leaders. How do you spot them? They're always complaining, always judging, always fighting. A lot of us are products of churches where we've seen torn apart because leaders are fighting. And they may have good reasons to argue and debate, and yet to be characterized as grumbling and judging and complaining and fighting. On one hand, you got to get past the, the, the arguing and fighting, but that doesn't mean that the hypocrisy is okay and the selfishness is okay. you got to get past the hypocrisy and the selfishness of others who, don't, who, may, not be, who may not proclaim to be close to Jesus. you got to get past, on the other hand, the coldness and the, and the talk, the muttering of others, that inner discord that comes from our own personal agendas and our desire to justify ourselves. That's the crowd. And you have to do what Zacchaeus, what he did, what he said. I'm going to find out who Jesus really is. 
I'm going to get around and get past the talk and the muttering. He just moved ahead, and then he went up the tree. Look at the Bible. If you look at the Gospels, what's Jesus like? Jesus is always turned off to religious insiders. And he's always moving towards the outsider. He's always moving towards the marginalized. He's always moving towards the humble. He's always moving towards the poor. He's always moving towards the weak. You notice in the Gospels, Jesus never yells or embarrasses prostitutes or tax collectors or the sinners. He's always gentle. The only places in the Gospels where you see Jesus actually yelling at people is when he's engaging religiosity, religious leaders, teachers. Jesus is so against our self-righteousness, so against our pride. Why? Because it prevents us from seeing him. Jesus is so against, as a result, the crowd. He doesn't let the crowd get in the way of his mission. And so everywhere in the Gospels, Jesus makes very clear who he's for and who he's against. In Luke 7, just chapters earlier from this passage, right, you have a prostitute. He's for the prostitute, a moral outsider, and yet he's against the religious leader. In Luke chapter 10, the, uh, the narrative of the Samaritan, he is for the Samaritan, clearly saying this racial outsider, he is the one who is honored in the story. And it's this Levite and priest, the religious insider that he looks down on. In Luke 15, you have the younger brother, wild and promiscuous, squanders wealth. Meanwhile, and he comes into the house. He comes into the party and the banquet. He's the one that's found. It's the elder brother, the good person. That still, we don't know really what happens to him. And here you have this tax collector. In the ancient Roman colonies, um, in the colonies, you had to collect taxes. The empire had to collect taxes. So they hired people to be tax collectors. And it's usually people who are, who are part of that region. And so in this particular case, you had a tax collector, Zacchaeus, who is Jewish, who is taxing people on behalf of the Roman Empire. And they were despised. They were outsiders to their own people. Why? Because they were extorting their own people. They were known to charge. You would take the tax that they owed the government. They would put something on top of the tax and claim that from the people, give to the government what they were owed, and what was placed on top, and the government backing it up with the military allowed them to place huge fees on top of the tax that would allow these men to get rich. And he was very rich, very, very wealthy. He was backed by the military, and as a result, everyone hated the tax collector. The tax collector was an outsider. They were known as betrayers, and Zacchaeus, he was the chief tax collector. That means he got very, very wealthy, extorting his own people, betraying his own people. He was the ultimate outsider. He was not accepted by the Roman Empire. Why? Because he was Jewish. And yet he was hated by his own people. And yet he is the one that is in with Jesus. Jesus is always moving towards the outsider. He says to Zacchaeus, let me in to your house. I must come and stay with you. I want to come into your life. Religion says this. You want to get in with God? Here's what you do. Listen to his teachings, and you got to obey, and you got to serve, because you need to work, or else God will be disappointed. God will not approve of you. 
In other words, you must not be that bad because you can work your way out of whatever sin debt there is that you've acquired or accumulated in your life. Just obey. Just be good. Just don't be like those people over there. But the gospel says what? We are lost. We are utterly lost. And because we're lost, we are worse than we've ever thought. We need rescue. That's why Jesus came, for people like ourselves. The gospel teaches us that the king, God himself, left his throne, came down to his people, and brings us in, saves us by his sheer grace. Outsiders understand that. Outsiders understand that more than insiders. Outsiders say, yes, I understand and dream and imagine of, of, of a person at a high place saying, I'm bringing you in. You're in. Outsiders get that. Insiders, they don't get that because they feel, I'm already in. I'm in. I don't really need that, per se. I've already heard that already. I'm good on my own. That's why when you often identify a religious insider, because when you challenge them, they get so defensive. Because you're not just challenging the point, you're challenging their sense of worth. Here in the crowd, everyone is looking for Jesus. Everybody wants to surround themselves around Jesus. What's the key here? The key is to be apart from the crowd even when you're part of the crowd. The key is to be apart from the crowd even when you're in the crowd. In other words, don't let the crowd keep you from seeing Jesus. Now, some of you say, yes, I love this preacher. He's against self-righteous because they're the problem in the church. Look, it takes a certain amount of self-righteousness to blame the self-righteous. And you can't be mad at the hypocrites. You can't be mad at the selfish people. You can't be mad at them either because, either because every one of us to some degree are hypocrites and selfish. What do you do? You're in the crowd. To see Jesus run ahead of the crowd. That religiosity, all the things that you heard growing up that you gotta obey in order to get in, run ahead of that crowd. Never let them keep you from seeing the beauty of Jesus, the brilliance of Jesus, the compassion of Jesus, the love of Jesus, the reality of who Jesus is. We all need to climb the tree. We all need to, to surrender our pride. But we need to oftentimes move apart from the crowd, get beyond the crowd that speaks religiosity and prevents us from seeing Jesus. But lastly, we need to give up our lives. Now notice, in this passage, Jesus doesn't say, Zacchaeus, come down. Here's what you gotta do. I need you to obey my teachings. I need you to hear me, listen to my teachings, and obey. I need you to serve, get in there. In fact, he doesn't even say, Zacchaeus, I need you to believe in me. I need you to trust in me. I need you to accept me as your savior. That's not what he says. In verse five, this is what he says. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. The literal language, there's an urgency. Hurry, I need to stay with you. And when he says, I must stay at your house, and in verse six, Zacchaeus welcomed him in gladly. And in verse seven, all the people who saw this began to mutter, mutter that he has, he has gone in to be a guest of a sinner. Those words, stay and welcome and be a guest, literally implies, well, it, it's literal and it implies that Jesus is gonna stay for a while with Zacchaeus. In other words, Jesus is saying to Zacchaeus, 
I need to live with you for a while. He's not just talking about one meal. He's saying, I need to stay for a while. What are the implications of that that we see here? There are two. First, it's about order, the order of salvation. Notice, Zacchaeus doesn't say, look, Lord, I'm going to stop extorting my people. I'm going to stop cheating them. I'm going to pay everyone back. And then Jesus says, you get it. Yes, you're listening to my teachings. Now I'll stay with you. That's not what he says. Jesus first goes to Zacchaeus and he says, I'm coming home with you. I'm going to live with you. Think about this. At this point, Zacchaeus made no commitments. He didn't even invite Jesus over. You have to understand, I mean, in our day, if somebody says, I'm coming over, they better be pretty good friends of yours. You better know them pretty well, right? But this is Zacchaeus' time in ancient culture. To have somebody come over and dine with you, let alone stay with you, was a very, very intimate request, a very intimate invitation. Zacchaeus wasn't even inviting Jesus into his life. Jesus invited himself first into Zacchaeus' life. Very important for us to know why. A lot of us think, okay, I need to get my life together. I need to see Jesus. I need, I need Jesus in my life. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to clean myself up. I've got to get my act together. I'm going to clean up. I'm going to get rid of some things. I'm going to stop doing some stuff. And I'm going to go to church. I'm going to start serving. And then Jesus is going to come in and accept me. Look, here's how it works. Some of you own homes. You are like a broken down house. The bank says, this is beyond repair. This house is beyond repair. It's going to cost way too much. Jesus says, name the price. I'm going to pay whatever it takes to take in this house. The bank says, okay, well, let's mortgage it out. You want a 30-year mortgage? How can we work this out? Jesus says, nope. I'm going to pay it up front in full right now. What? You're never going to get your value back. You're never going to make good on this investment. Jesus says, it's okay. I just want it to be mine. The bank says, okay, well, how are we going to recoup this? It's going to take you some time. You need to fix this thing up because it's a mess. It's unlivable right now. When are you going to actually get into this house? Jesus says, well, I'm going to move in right now. What? I'm going to move in right now. And then he claims you as his own, and he moves right in first, and then room by room, he starts to clean you up. He goes into all the dark corners of your heart, and he starts to clean it out. In verse 5, Jesus says, he's made no commitments yet. Zacchaeus, I'm going to live with you. Then Zacchaeus is amazed, and in verse 8, he says, Lord, I'm going to stop cheating people. I'm going to stop extorting people. Remember, this was his life. In other words, obedience was not the requirement for the relationship. It was the fruit of relationship with Jesus. Jesus is saying, yes, you are a sinner. In spite of your sin, I want to be with you. Yes, you have a terrible record. In spite of that record, you are in. In fact, I'm not just going to work in spite of your sin and your record. I'm going to work through your sin and your record because it was your record and your sin that brought you to me. 
and the crowd will make it tough. The crowd will make it very tough to see me, but nothing will ever stop me from coming to you. Nothing will ever stop me from seeing you. What was Zacchaeus' response? It was joy. Verse 6, he welcomed him gladly. You see this joyful encounter of Zacchaeus, juxtaposed by the religious and the muttering, the sinner over there. You get that? Which one of those people are you? Either you're joyful because Jesus chose to forget your sin, or you're angry because you chose to forget the good news that Jesus came to the lost. Jesus came to the outsider. That means the best place to be in life, not literally, but the best place, the best posture to be in is to always be on a tree with a posture of looking for Jesus and a posture of lostness because that's how you get found and that's how you experience the joy of being in Jesus. The best place to be is to have sacrificed your dignity looking for Jesus in a posture of lostness. Verse 8, when he says, I'm going to stop cheating people, he says, look, Lord. You know what that means? If you actually look at the literal text there, there's lots of emotion. He's practically crying Jesus not only sees him, Jesus not only identifies him, Jesus says, I want to stay with you. This man is a moral outsider. This man is a religious outsider. This man has been uh, moved outside by every ring that he's around, and yet Jesus, the high king, says, I want to come in with you. And so he's, he's moved, and he's moved, and he says, look, Lord, there's lots of emotion there. Notice, it's not the change. The change does not lead to intimacy. It's the intimacy with Jesus that leads to the change. And the love of Jesus is not his incentive for change. It becomes the power for change. Notice he says, Lord. When Zacchaeus says, I'm going to give half my stuff away, I'm going to pay everyone back, Jesus doesn't say, ah, yes, now you're saved. That's the wrong order. That's the wrong order to obey in order to be accepted. In verse 9, he says, today salvation has come. Zacchaeus hasn't given up a thing (laughs) yet. He's saying this is a sign that he gets it. Because before, money was your highest. You pursued money more than you pursued people. And so you've ruined your relationships with people. And now you're pursuing people more than money because you're trying to reconcile and you're giving the money back. The response doesn't come before the salvation. The obedience doesn't come before the salvation. It's the salvation that comes before the obedience. There's a tremendous order there that we need to know. But the more the, the second uh, implication here is that salvation only comes through the trans, transforming love and intimacy that we were talking about, the transforming love and intimacy with God. These people, they can't stand the idea that Jesus will be willing to eat with Zacchaeus, that he'd be willing to live with Zacchaeus. Why? Because think about this. Even in our culture today, we, those that we tend to have over our homes are the people with whom we can let our hair down. 
These are the ones that we're willing, we feel super comfortable around. The ones that we're most intimate with, where we're not afraid to be exposed. We know that when, you, when these people come in and they stay with us, they will see everything. They will see the mess in every room. They will see how you live. They will see what things that you desire, what things you, you, that preoccupy your day. You see, in ancient times, even in ancient times, all the more because the evening meal was the center of family life. The center of family life. That means that it took a long time to prepare. It took a lot to prepare it. It was super costly. Remember, there was no electricity back then on top of that. So that means that the meal was the last thing that you had. It was an extended meal in time. And after that, because there was no electricity, when it goes dark, it goes pitch dark, you went to bed. So to bring someone into your home and to eat with them, to have to stay with you, live with you, it's got to be someone who is intimate with you. It's got to be somebody of extreme value in your life. In other words, Jesus, because he's eating over Zacchaeus' house, he would be part of the most intimate parts of Zacchaeus' life, the private parts of his life. And they're calling him sinner. And, you know, if you think about it, because of the tax system, you know, you took the tax and you put something on top of the tax, that's often how, if you've ever read Freakonomics, that's how drug dealers operate. And these people, oftentimes by the religious, they regarded tax collectors the way we look at or talk about drug dealers today. They were completely on the outside, despised, and the types of crowds that they hung with. But if you look at this, it looks like Jesus is willing to get into Zacchaeus' mess then. All that mess, it's going to make him dirty, secret dirt. That's what that means. The reason why people stay away from outsiders is why. I mean, if you ever been through middle school, and everyone here has been through middle school, you know how it is, right? When you're hanging around, when you notice an outsider, people stay away from that person. That's where, like, it really starts getting bad around middle school. They, they stop hanging out with outsiders. They identify them, they stay away. Why? Because it's almost like if you come near an outsider, and if you become closer to an outsider, it's almost like their outsiderliness is contagious, and it transfers over to you. It's imputed to you. And so what happens is now you become an outsider. The more you start to hang out with outsiders, you become one yourself. And so they, they, they kept separate paths. They called him sinner. It looks like Jesus is getting into that mess. It's a, they're aghast. He's becoming an outsider. And that's what that means. That's why they couldn't stand Jesus. It's why they couldn't stand Zacchaeus. It's why they couldn't stand Jesus staying with Zacchaeus. What's Jesus saying here? Look, if you get me, he's saying, if you want my salvation, don't just come and hear about me being the center of your life for an hour and a half on a Sunday when the eagles are not playing or when your workload is light. I'm coming in to live with you. And so the Bible says, give 10% of your income away. Zacchaeus, in verse 8, he says, I give 50% of my income. The Bible says that when you cheat somebody, you pay them back that amount plus one more fifth, one fifth, 120%. Zacchaeus says, I give four times that amount. I'm going to give four times the amount of anybody I've cheated, 400%. Why? He is experiencing a lavish grace. 
And he's not just doing what's required. He's not saying, wow, I've experienced this lavish grace. Now, what's the minimum that I need to give? He's not, he's not pulling out his calculator. He's not just doing what's required. He's responding to a lavish grace with a radical, reconciling, lavish response. In Revelation chapter 3, Jesus says, I stand at the door and knock. If anybody will open the door, I will come in and eat with them. You know what that means? What he's saying is, I'm coming in to be a part of your life. All of your secret things, everything is going to change. I'm giving access to, to you, to all of me. But now I'm going to get access to all of you. Where do you spend your wealth? Where do you spend your time? I mean, those of you, if you're parents, you understand. <laughs> he wants to, it's not enough just to hear me once. <laughs> he needs to hear me. <laughs> Honestly, happens all the time. <laughs> happens to me all the time. Um, where do you spend your time? If you're a parent, you know time is sometimes more valuable than any wealth that you've accrued. Where do you spend your time? Where do, where do your thoughts go? What are you distracted by? What is your sex life like? What is your family life? If Jesus were to walk into, you know those old skits that used to do where Jesus is that guy that's wearing the towel. That's how you identify him in the skit. He's always wearing white and he's got the towel around him and he's kind of walking around and they're partying and they're drinking and smoking and doing drugs and Jesus kind of standing there and they push him away. You know the skits? If Jesus were to enter into your house right now, you know, what will your family life look like? What kind of jobs do you take or turn away and why? What is your parenting life like? What do you watch? What do you read? What influences you? How important are your politics? What do you read, even the Christian stuff? By the way, Revelation 3, behold, I stand at the door and knock, that was written to the church. He was writing to the Christians. You know what that means? If you want Jesus Christ in your life, if you're a Christian, you can't just see him on, on Sundays. He says, I want to be intimate with you. I will dine with you. I will eat with you. That means you need to place Jesus at the centerpiece, as the centerpiece of your day, the centerpiece of your family, the centerpiece of your evening, the centerpiece piece of your pursuits, the centerpiece of your life. Now think about this. That means to plug into that. Now think about this. How can Jesus look at us? We're the outsiders. How can he look at us and say, I want in with you? We're desperate to be in with him. He says, I want to come in with you. You know why? He understands. He understands what it means to be an outsider. Jesus is the ultimate insider. He is part of the Trinity. He comes from heaven. He says, I am one with God. I'm, I'm united with God. God and I are one. The Father and I are one. That's about as inside as you get. But my favorite hymn, he left his father's throne above so free, so infinite, his grace. Jesus Christ came to the world. Verse 10, he literally came to seek the sinners. 
and the sinners turned him away. We rejected him. And so from the moment he was born, remember, there was no room at the inn, and so he was born in a manger. Starting from his birth, he was an outsider, and he lived like an outsider all of his earthly life. Foxes have holes. The birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. From the time he was born into his adult life, he was an outsider until he was placed on a cross. That is the ultimate sign of rejection. And there on the cross, as the wrath of God was pouring out on Jesus for, as a penalty for our sins, he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In other words, God my union has forsaken me. My centerpiece has forsaken me. And so now I am the ultimate cosmic outsider. The ultimate insider became the ultimate outsider to take on our penalty for sin. What's that penalty? We say it's hell. What is hell? Hell is ultimate outsiderness from God. It's ultimate lostness from God. So when he says, I have been forsaken by God, what he's saying is, I have now become a cosmic outsider. I've been completely forsaken by God. The Trinity has been torn apart and set on the cross. And Jesus was experiencing that right there. Look, Zacchaeus, he's up a tree, gave up his dignity. And Jesus says, Come down because you're an insider with me. And so he gives up in response. He gives up his sin patterns. He gives up his wealth. And he says, yes, I want you in. I want to be in with you. Why does he do that? Why does Zacchaeus do that? Why was he so moved by that? Jesus tells Zacchaeus to come down the tree and restores his dignity because Jesus will eventually sacrifice his dignity and go up the tree. Zacchaeus knows that in order for Jesus to be close to him, Jesus would have to sacrifice some honor. Jesus would have to sacrifice some of his reputation. Jesus would not have to get dirty. He knows that. And he is the high king. He's coming from the highest place of honor. Zacchaeus saw that Jesus was never in the crowd. He was always over the crowd. And he eventually climbs the ultimate tree. And when you see Jesus sacrificing his ultimate honor, his ultimate status, his ultimate reputation, his ultimate wealth, his ultimate kingliness, his ultimate dignity, his ultimate access to God, his intimacy with God, forsaken by God. When you see Jesus doing that for you on the cross, losing intimacy with God and access to God, surrendering the center of his life for you, becoming the ultimate outsider for you, dining alone in a sense. You know why he was dining on the cross? Because he was eating and swallowing the wrath of God alone, the radical cost of being with you. When you see Jesus doing that for you, then you will gladly welcome him in. That, will, that love will give you the power to climb the tree, to get rid of your honor it will not be that important to you anymore to sacrifice some of your honor and your dignity and your reputation and your status and your wealth. You will be able to do that in a very practical way. And you will be able to say, look, Lord, because you're moved. I'm giving it all up for you. Friends, we're about to come to the table very briefly.
When you come to the table and take of the elements, it's an opportunity for you to take Jesus in again. You're literally taking in, as part of your spiritual union, the body and the blood of Jesus. So that his power, his saving power, will flow through in your life every dark corner. And so if you've been pursuing wealth all your life, Jesus will say, now you're richer in me. You pursue Jesus say, I'm coming empty and broken. And Jesus will say, take of me and you will be fuller and healed. You're going to sacrifice your dignity in taking him in. Jesus will say, I will restore that dignity and give you a status unimaginable in him. Union. Because you are in. You are in Christ. Let's, let's pray.